Hello, it's Nick Brown, Global Health Editor for ADC. I'm very excited to have with me today Tina Slusher, who's Associate Professor of Paediatrics in Minnesota, who's got a big interest in global health and specifically neonatal jaundice. She and a colleague, Bola Olasanya, recently produced a paper for the global section about conictrous and disability in low- and middle-income countries, which is a fascinating read. And today we're going to talk through the paper both about the the background and what the future holds. So the paper was essentially about looking at delays in treatment. Thank you for joining us, Tina. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Tina, just to kick off, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about the pathology of neonatal jaundice and, and the epidemiology specifically in low- and middle-income countries. At least in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and many low-middle-income countries, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase plays a huge role uh, in the incidence of severe neonatal jaundice and cornicterus, in part because it, it is higher. The percentage of people who are G6PD deficient are higher, and that coupled with some of the newborn care practices like putting mentholatum or henna on the baby makes that a bigger problem. Blood group incompatibilities, including ABO and and RHD, also factor in. Many mothers who need Rogam don't get it, so that's a problem, as is low birth weight, prematurity, and sepsis and meningitis. If you look at a recent report on the global burden of hyperbilirubinemia, that was spearheaded by the Child Health Epidemiology Reference Group, it suggested that if you look at low-middle-income countries uh, represented in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, that jaundice probably contributes to about 1.1 million babies who develop severe hyperbilirubinemia. And among those children, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, they have the highest rate of jaundice-associated deaths at almost 10%, and the six highest uh, countries for rates of things like exchange blood transfusions to treat that are from studies in low-middle-income countries, with uh, Nigeria and Bolivia having very high rates. Okay, thank you. So there are a number of pre-existing major risk factors, some of which are modifiable and some of which are not immediately. So you you set out to look at, your hypothesis was there were a number of modifiable risk factors from the development of jaundice to its treatment. So could you talk through what your, the background to your paper was, your search and what you were, what you were trying to, to dissect out? Yes, and and probably ours was, uh, I guess more correctly, a research question as opposed to uh, a a pure hypothesis. And and that question was, why is cornicterus completely preventable and rarely reported in in high-income countries still a major cause of death and disability in poorly resourced nations? And in trying to answer that question, we used a model by Thad and his colleagues on three levels of delay. And that particular model has been used to answer questions about maternal 
mortality in low middle income countries and of course when mothers die uh, that affects the baby so it seemed like an appropriate model for our question as well and so what what did you find when you when you looked at the literature where where were the main delays there are several of course places where the delays happen and the the first delay is is often a delay in seeking care many of these babies are are born outside of traditional healthcare facilities many are still delivered by traditional birth attendants in homes churches or small clinics those places don't have laboratory capable of doing bilirubin they can't provide phototherapy and many of them still give out a uh, list to the mothers and essential newborn supplies may include methylatum or dusting powder, which again, in the face of G6PD deficiency, leads to severe neonatal jaundice and if the babies survive cornectris. There is also often a delay in seeking care because the infants are kept inside in dark rooms and they aren't followed up by healthcare providers. They aren't screened for jaundice until they present to the hospital sometimes as early as days four to six, and sometimes even as late as almost two weeks, not feeding well with obvious acute bilirubin encephalopathy. And often when you take your history, you find out that they've been treated with herbs uh, or maybe they've actually even been treated with antibiotics. But of course, neither of those are appropriate treatment for the jaundice itself and things move along and then they go to the nearest healthcare facility. Most of those healthcare facilities don't have bilirubin testing. Most of them don't have phototherapy. So even if they recognize that this is severe jaundice, it takes some time. I mean, people don't usually move at night because of the safety issues, etc. And eventually get to a healthcare facility that's thought to have phototherapy and guess what? They get there and there's no electricity. Uh, The lights went off, there's no phototherapy because there's no electricity. Lights come on whenever they come on, maybe even hours and hours later. And then the infant's placed under phototherapy that is actually subtherapeutic, meaning the irradiance level isn't high enough to actually treat severe jaundice. And if you look at studies from India, Nigeria, Cameroon, you find out that most of the phototherapy in these countries is in the below therapeutic range, even in big hospitals. My colleagues and I did a study in Nigeria and about 94% of the phototherapy devices in 12 referral-level hospitals were less than 10, and none of them had intensive phototherapy. Even you're you're now at what you think is the tertiary, well, it is. It's a tertiary health center, but you aren't getting the treatment you need. Many of these, even at the tertiary level, may have to send out their bilirubin blood sample and sometimes those labs come back two or three days later and don't change 
what happened. So these babies are inexorably heading for coniculus-related disability by that stage. Exactly, exactly. So in the newborn period, there's, you know, as I've said, multiple levels of delay. And then if they do survive their acute bilirubin encephalopathy, there's little or no access or treatment for kids with deafness or language processing disorders or cerebral palsy. They don't routinely do newborn hearing screen. So there's an additional delay in receiving appropriate care for these kids down the line. Sure. And I'm assuming that the picture is similar in all the in all the countries from which there's literature. So Cameroon you mentioned, India, Nigeria. Yes, that is the case. And obviously there are regional variations and variations from place to place. I mean, of course, there's places in India where the care is is equivalent to that in in high income countries and there's places in India where it is very much not not the case and less so I think in sub Saharan Africa there's there's just not a whole lot of places where children are able to get timely appropriate care. And there's things like until very recently There were virtually no irradiance meters in the whole country of Nigeria. Well, if if I ask you or you ask me to tell you if a phototherapy device was therapeutic, if we both looked at it and the lights were, quote, on, you and I'd probably say, oh, yeah, we're doing phototherapy. But if you stick an irradiance meter under there, you're going, well, not really, (laughs) because the irradiance is is subtherapeutic. Nobody even knew that because there's no irradiance meters and they cost a lot of money, as do good phototherapy units, et cetera, et cetera. So I primed you for this question beforehand, but um, and there's probably no no answer to it really. But in an ideal world, obviously, we'd like to move all these factors forward. But if you had to choose one for either recognition, primary health care presentation delay, secondary health care facilities, measuring jaundice and the treatment, and then the the post-jaundice treating the, the damage that has been done, so prompt recognition of hearing deficits, if there was one you could choose to eradicate, if you like, in terms of making the biggest difference, which would it be? Well, I'm 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 going to cheat a little bit in my answer, but because in some ways that's of course an impossible question. If you if you look at the big picture and you look at what's happened in high income countries, it it's it's also multifactorial, but provision of effective phototherapy would probably be the best intervention, but effective phototherapy hinges on simultaneous education at all levels of healthcare. Yeah, I don't that's not cheating, that's a good answer. I like that. <laughs> because of the and the knock-on effects, it will open so many other doors. People's eyes are opened by by dint of there being effective treatments. Yes, and you know, if the family knows when and where to go and actually gets there in time, has their blood groups measured, knows their G6PD status, so so all those kind of things. So it's really prevention of coronavirus is really a package identification. You know, in remote tropical regions where conventional phototherapy is not available, 
my partners and I are looking into guided or selectively filtered exposure to sunlight as a solution to prevent chronicteris. Tina, that's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I, I know the paper is going to be widely read. I know the podcast is going to be listened to very broadly, too. And I know practice will change as, as a result of that. Um, I could go on talking for a lot longer, but thanks very much for today. It's been really good talking to you. Same here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Appreciate it, as do all the babies in our in our low middle income countries. Thank you. 